gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Hey listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, today is our uh, what we're calling our official two-year anniversary, because it was two years ago today that uh, we um, posted our first thing, which we call internally a manifesto. It wasn't super manifesto but um, it was uh, sort of an explanation uh, to folks about what we were doing and why we'll put it in the show notes. Um, and you know, I can talk about it a little bit. I also talked about that at length with, um, Steve Hayes, uh, earlier this week and should be going up, I believe today, um, for the Friday dispatch podcast, where we sort of did a year in review thing. Um, we probably shouldn't have recorded it late in the day because we were both truly exhausted and, um, kind of sick of each other. Uh, but I think we, um, we managed to keep it, uh, the tone fairly light. Um, and I, again, I have no idea how interested a lot of people are and how this thing's going and what our plans are and all that kind of stuff. But I know some people are because I mean, people ask me a lot and ask Steve a lot. And, um, uh, so we thought it was, you know, worthwhile to address all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, one thing I do regret, we like we were trying to think of like funny stories and stuff to talk about and all that kind of thing. And I forgot to mention how there's this really weird, um, dumb inside joke between me and Steve that has developed over the last year or so. Because uh, look, I, I talk to Steve on the phone a lot. I mean, a lot. And it's weird because I'm not really a phone guy. Um, Steve is, it's one of the reasons why he's a good reporter. He likes talking to people on phones, you know, I mean, he's, he's no Bill Clinton. Um, but he can, he can talk to people for long periods of time and have conversations with people that, and come out at, at least a little energized and, um, uh, they exhaust me. Um, and I, I kind of, I kind of take after my dad in this, uh, that's why I said he's no Bill Clinton. I remember the, mo I'm, I don't know if I've told this before, but. I remember the moment my dad decided he did not like Bill Clinton for real. Um, it was during the transition after he beat Bush. So he probably disliked Clinton before even that, but like, this is where it got personal. And, um, and the thing you need to know about my dad is my dad hated meetings. He just thought meetings were an enormous waste of time if they went more than 15 minutes. And, uh, there was this long, um, beat sweetener, um, piece about the Clinton transition team. Um, for those of you who don't know, one of the reasons why it's not just liberal media bias, but one of the reasons why, um, newspapers and, um, and, and, you know, media outlets run these fawning profiles of all sorts of people in, in new administrations at the beginning of the administration is it's because it's a transactional thing to cultivate sources. And so, I mean, that's one of the reasons why all those crazy Jen Psaki pieces at the beginning of the Biden administration um, were all over the place. It's part because obviously liberal media bias and all that kind of stuff. But a part of it was just an in industry practice of sucking up to the new sources in the White House. So anyway, there was this long thing about Clinton and um, how the transition was going. And there was one scene where Clinton had just concluded like a four 
hour meeting about something with a lot of busy, important people. And he pushes away from the desk and says in a sort of almost carnal kind of, I need a cigarette kind of way. Oh, that was great. And like, that was like the exact opposite of the person my dad was, which was that, that a four hour meeting would have my dad, um, bouncing off the walls. So anyway, uh, where was I talking about? I talked to Steve all the time and, um, um, wheels within wheels of my meandering anecdotes as I try to wake up here. Um, and Steve is often, you know, working from home. He's got four kids, including, um, you know, a very little girl. And I'll hear Steve, you know, start talking to, you know, his little girl instead of me, um, without telling me that he's switching, you know, conversation conversations. And so we'll be talking about, you know, the budget or whatever. And then all of a sudden he'll be like, is that your pony? Or, you know, do you want me to cut the crust off that? Or, um, you know, do you need help with the potty? That kind of thing. And whenever he says any of these kinds of things, I always say, Hey, was that Declan? You talking to Declan? Who is of course the, you know, this kid who works for, you know, kid, you know, he's does a fantastic job running the morning dispatch, went to Harvard and all that. But, um, it's just this running joke and I keep waiting for Steve to stop laughing at it, but I catch him by surprise every single time. So anyway, a little slice of life thing. Um, so, uh, I was talking with, um, Caleb and, uh, guy, um, Sometimes it's it's hard to talk to guy when he's got the ball gagging, but he took it out. And um, we are uh, um, trying to figure out what to talk about this morning. I don't want to talk about the job numbers. They're bad. Um, they're not terrible. It's not the end of the world, but they're not good. Not good. Um, I suspect it's all Delta variant, you know, adjustment and supply chain, yada, yada. And there are 10,000 people who know that stuff better than I do. We can talk about it. Um. I did want to address uh, one thing, um, which I've been meaning to address for like two weeks now. Like uh, it was like two weeks ago. Whenever I went into the office to record a podcast in person, I can't remember if it was the Shannon Coffin one. Um, it must have been. Anyway, I um, um, I went into the office and uh, Caleb said, "So is it true?" And I'm like, "What?" And he says, is it true that you have a, um, Atlas shrugged Ayn Rand poster on your wall? And, you know, I was seconds from turning my car keys into some sort of fist weapon and gouging out as Adam's apple for the accusation. And then he explained that, um, apparently on that, that Clinton scandal, true crime, American crime story thing on FX or Hulu or whatever, um, they had a scene in my old apartment in Adams Morgan um, where Michael Isgoff from Newsweek and my mom and Linda Tripp have this conversation, yada, yada, yada. And in the background, there is a big, I've met people have now sent me screen grabs of it. There's a big ass poster f of the, like the Atlas shrugged, um, book cover or, you know, that it's kind of amazing how objectivist art is so close to Soviet realist art. Um, but whatever, uh, on the wall of what was supposed to be my apartment. Now, I could get angry or objectionable or, or 
dyspeptic or whatever word I'm trying to come up with that is um, correct for this moment, but um, about the fact that they cut me out of the scene entirely. Like there was no meeting at my apartment without me there. Um, and there were actually other, anyway, we don't need to get into all that, but, um, they, they cut me out of the scene. Don't know why. Don't really care. Um, uh, I, you know, as, as people may have noticed, I don't, I'm not ashamed of anything that I did back then really, but I don't talk about it all that much because I never wanted it to define me. They were sort of exigent circumstances and I did what I thought was the right thing to do at the time. And it was both a real opportunity and also a real and also had real negative consequences for me too in all sorts of career ways and personal ways and all that kind of stuff but whatever you know you make you take life as you find it so do not mind that they didn't have me in in the room um whatsoever although just for the record i was there because in part um i was furious at how isakoff ate like all of my pistachios but um this Ayn Rand thing. I mean, like, clearly they have not done their homework about me. Um, I am not a Randian. I am not an objectivist. I, you know, I've become more libertarian over time, but I am not, um, um, I'm definitely not an objectivist. And um, uh, this assumption that because I was a young conservative in the 1990s, that I was also a Rand worshiper um, it's just, it's just outrageous. And, um, I'd sue for damages, but I don't think I can show damages. Um, all right. So since I'm talking about Rand, uh, why don't I explain why I'm not a Randian for two seconds and that maybe will be a way I can figure out how to, um, segue into talking about the George Will stuff from earlier this week. Um, um, Again, I'm I'm fairly libertarian, you know, even even before I started becoming more libertarian, which has been a long process. Um I I always used to say at the federal level, I'm very libertarian, at the state level, I'm a little libertarian, and at the local level, I'm not very libertarian at all. Um said it different ways, but that's the basic point. The argument being that at the federal level, there's very little that the federal government is supposed to do that affects my day-to-day -day life. Um, at the state level where people have more influence and power and control to uphold community norms and stuff. Um, uh, I'm, I'm a little less libertarian and at the, and at the, at the local level and really at the, and certainly at the family level, I'm a communitarian. Um, uh, one of the core insights of whether you want to call it subsidiarity or localism or federalism, um, um, and even family values is this just basic notion that um, the the smaller the unit of uh, life, um, the more social solidarity, the more right people have to sort of impose norms, to live, uh, adhere to traditions and all of that kind of thing. Um, because the closer you are to the individual or the family, uh, the more consensus there is around those things. And, uh, you know, this is a rich and long topic or a short and quick topic. Um, but you know, I used to, the way I used to explain it to people is, uh, you know, there was this weird boomlet about Braveheart in the 1990s on the right among a kind of paleo conservative kind of crowd. 
and also like a paleo libertarian kind of crowd. And, um, and, and I like, like, I, I like the movie Braveheart. I'm not criticizing the movie Braveheart, but the way to sort of understand these kinds of distinctions is that the Scots had very, very serious and well-developed local customs and traditions. It was not a Randian nirvana where the only important political unit of society was the individual. Um, you know, you lived in your little thatch huts and you had those fantastic cows, which, you know, had, um, um, those sort of toupees like my, my Springer Spaniels. Um, but you lived according to customs and rules that had, you know, percolated and grown up over, um, generations or centuries or whatever. And they were Scottish, they were Scottish traditions. And, um, the English came in and they tried to impose their way of life on the Scots. And so when, when Mel Gibson is running around screaming freedom, um, and all that kind of stuff, he is not screaming for libertarian freedom. He's screaming for, he's not screaming for Randian, um, objectivist freedom. He's screaming for the freedom of local communities to live that the way they want to live. And you can see how for a certain breed of paleo conservative or paleo libertarian, um, who's deeply enamored in a lot of the BS about the South and, and Jim Crow's, you know, history stuff. Um, you can kind of see how a lot of those kind of, that kind of crowd could on the one hand use the language of freedom a lot, while at the same time have a lot of antipathy towards sort of the, the, the hyper individualism of conventional libertarianism or never mind Randian libertarianism. And, um, how did I get on that? All right. So anyway, I'm not, a, I'm not a Randian. And I do think, however, that the, I, I go back and forth about this, the, you know, the national review famously, um, uh, under Bill Buckley's leadership, basically defenestrated the Randians from the, um, mainstream American conservative movement. And there are a bunch of different reasons about it, reason for it. Um, the most famous sort of exposition on this came from Whitaker Chambers, who we talked about. See, I'm trying to figure out how to get to the George Will stuff. Um, Whitaker Chambers wrote this review. I guess it was of Atlas Shrug. Um, or maybe it was, yeah, I, guess, I think it was of Atlas Shrug. Um, uh, about Ayn Rand. And the real point of it was, as the the sort of conventional language goes, was to read... Um, the Randians and Ayn Rand out of the conservative movement. And there's this very famous line in there where Chambers writes something along the lines of on page after page wafts up a single message or something like that. Um, wafts up a single message to the gas chamber go. And I've always thought that that line at least was unfair of, of, of Chambers. Um, but the, you know, the, the way the Randians kind of, uh, have contempt for religion, contempt for tradition, contempt for all sorts of bourgeois norms and expectations of how to behave in a civil society. I do think that they don't belong in mainstream conservatism. Um, and, uh, doesn't mean that, you know, doesn't, this is one of these ironies about a lot of these things is that, you know, 
there are a lot of people who love Rand and can quote Rand for days at you and um, will defend her against all this stuff that I said um, or embrace or, or, or defend Rand's approach to all of this stuff who are just really sweet, nice, decent people in real life. But this is their sort of fan culture, intellectual, ideological fan culture. It's sort of like, you know, a lot of these uh, sort of new integralists and, you know, neo-paleo types who, you know, talk about how everybody was better in the 12th century and all that kind of stuff, um, but still use microwave ovens. It's, um, um, and it's, it's a little Star Trek convention right? You know, where, you know, the Rigelians and the, the Romulans get into huge arguments about, you know, the Ferengis or whatnot. And it's all interesting and fun, but it's relevance to how these people actually live their lives once they leave the conversation is, is pretty minimal. Um, but, um, uh, you know, Bill Buckley, he explained, and at some point I'll remember where, um, and I, I mean, I've heard him explain it in interviews, but he wrote about it somewhere. I'll figure it out. Um, maybe it was his, no, in, in, uh, have you ever seen a dream walking? But I, I can't remember. Anyway, um, he said, you know, the reason why Ayn Rand wasn't part of the conservative movement or the right or whatever the right terminology was, um, was that he said, you, look, you don't have to be religious, never mind orthodox, never mind a Catholic, never mind a Christian to be a conservative. But, um, you have to have respect for religion and respect for the religious. And you have to have a certain amount of reverence for notions of the transcendent, even if they don't do much for you personally. And some people think this is a sort of cynical thing. Um, I've heard it argued about on from atheists to, to the Orthodox. Um, I agree with, with Buckley. Um, I think that you have to have an appreciation for the positive aspects of religion, the positive wellspring, you know, what the, what, what the, what religion provides for humanity, um, particularly correct, you know, I, I don't want to get into it, like what's a correct religious view versus an incorrect religious view or any of that kind of stuff. This is not going to get into theology, but you have to be, um, you have to have a certain amount of reverence or respect and for both religion and the religious and um and if you have contempt for them then you're just not gonna play well with you know mainstream conservatives and um and it's a it's a i mean i, I sound like i'm from fring it's because it's a thorny question on the right you know one of the my friend ron bailey who is a um pretty serious atheist, um, and a very serious libertarian and a wonderful human being, and one of my closest friends. Um, he once interviewed Irving Kristol, who's obviously one of my heroes and said, um, um, and, and Irving gave a very interesting answer that drove Ron a little bonkers, which was along the lines of, I, I wish I had check the quote before I started talking, but it was along the lines of, um, you know, Ron was asking about religion and Ron said, well, do you believe 
or something like that. And Irving said, um, belief doesn't matter. Religion matters. And, um, and this harkens back to Irving's earliest days where, you know, one of the lessons he learned about being in the army was, um, how, first of all, like socialism wasn't going to work because it couldn't do the things that religion did and that religion was a really important constraint on the downsides of human behavior. And you can see that view as cynical or, um, whatever. I, I think it's realistic. I think it's, um, it's true. Even if you would want to have a, a more ornate and, uh, beautiful and poetic and transcendental and transcendent understanding of religion. Um, uh, it doesn't mean it's not true. And it's not, and this is not a Marxist opiate of the masses argument. It is, oh, it is a, it's a different argument. It's about how you you constrain behavior and you, um, and you rightly inform conscience and all that kind of thing. And I guess one way to sort of back into the George Will stuff is that I asked George about his blindsiding attack on Whitaker Chambers in that column, um, and where he basically he he basically attributed the whiny victimology populist strain of the right these days to Chambers, and I said, you know, I, I just found it odd that you would call it, you know, you say Chambers was the Fonzette Origio of this trend. Fonzette Origio just means the, the origin point, the source point. I think it's like, you know, like, uh, Fonz, I don't know, is it, is it like a fountain? It's like the uh, wellspring where a river comes from kind of thing. And it's a, and if, if I can't use fancy language when talking to George Will, then who can I? So anyway, um, and he chuckled at that and he backed off and said, I, I wasn't, I don't say he backed off, but he said, um, I wasn't saying he was the source of it. He was a source of it or he contributed to it. And then he switched gears a little bit. George could be a little slippery on this stuff. And I have, I have nothing but reverence for George, but George is very, a very good talker and he's very good at talking about the things that he wants to talk about, um, in the way that he wants to talk about them. And, uh, and who am I to judge on that? And so there's, um, among my egghead conservative dork peers, there seems to be a consensus that what George was really getting at was the problem with how, uh, with, with, with Chambers religiosity. Um, George is a, as, which we didn't talk about, but George Will is, um, what he is described as a low voltage atheist. Um, and he will talk about it if pressed. I just didn't want to talk about it. Um, or I didn't see a, a, an opening to talk about it. Um, I don't know if that's true. I'm not going to put George Will on the couch or whatever. I do think it is that Whitaker Chambers is a weird um, poster boy for this trend. And um, even though I think I agree with George 100% that this is a real trend and a real problem on the right. Um, and Al Felsenberg, who's a great historian of Buckley and of conservatism and all this kind of stuff, he actually did a good piece um, about, I guess, about a year ago um, about this chapter early in George's career um, at National Review. George used to write this letter from Washington under the byline Cato um, and um, where 
George was very anti Spiru Agnew, uh, Richard Nixon's vice president, who was sort of, I mean, sort of get a sense of him. He was sort of like equidistant between, say, Mike Pence and Sarah Palin, um, I guess is one way to put it. Populist guy, had the support of the populist right, um, knew his stuff better than Sarah Palin did. Um, um, but, uh, um, wasn't as sophisticated about cultivating that audience as Mike Pence has been, I guess is one way to put it. Um, it's a weird era. You know, this was a time, thanks in part because of Happy Cannon and William Sapphire, that ridiculous alliteration with big words was considered the height of wordsmithery, which is why you had, you know, Sapphire and, and Buchanan competing with each other to come up with phrases like nattering nabobs of negativism and um, pusillanimous pussyfooters and that kind of thing. So I don't have a fantastic grasp on on the the frequency of a lot of these things, but I think I'm g- generally right. And anyway, George didn't like Spiro Agnew in part because I think it was probably even evident back then. And it's certainly evident in retrospect, Spear Agnew was a corrupt politician. I remember talking to Ben Wadenberg about, you know, Watergate and, and Agnew and all this stuff. And, and, and Ben was like, John, look, you can have our, we can have an argument about Watergate stuff about, you know, whether it was overblown or whether it was a constitutional crisis. And all that. Those are real arguments. But Spear Agnew, he took brown paper bags full of cash. Like that's just bad. He took bribes <laughs> and and um fair point. So anyway, the, there's that's a better example of to me the sort of um early days of that that phenomenon, that populist right whiny victim stuff on the on the right. Um but I guess he wanted to date it back further. Um, the thing I find interesting about Whitaker Chamber, well, one of the things I find interesting about Whitaker Chambers, um, uh, he's, he's an interesting cat, um, sexually kind of non-traditional in some ways. Um, we can just sort of say that, um, he thought he was joining the losing side, um, in the great struggle between, you know, Marxism and, and democracy or capitalism and communism, all kind of stuff. Um, and he turned out at least for a while to be clearly wrong. Um, we'll see how history unfolds in front of us. Um, and, but the thing I've always sort of found really sort of interesting about him is how he did not consider himself a conservative. He considered himself a man, what he called a man of the right. And this is one of the things I was trying to get into with George about the, you know, the, the sort of lexicological terminological crisis that we have on the right these days. We are so accustomed to referring things, referring to right wing things as conservative things that we have forgotten that something can be right wing without being conservative. Um, and it, this is true at a bunch of different levels, horizontally and vertically, in the sense that, you know, as I've, as I've said a bunch of times before, 
you know, conservatism is one of these isms, much like radicalism, uh, that is completely contextual. Um, I know a lot of people on the right like to believe that they don't believe in, you know, situational ethics or subjective morality or, you know, moral relativism, whatever the phrase we're supposed to not use. Um, and I get that when we're talking about like universal notions of morality and all that kind of stuff, even though a lot of people on the right who claim to believe in those things don't actually believe in those things. But, um, um, you know, this is a point that I got into with George about, you know, how Hayek pointed out how in America is the only place where you can be, um, you can call someone a conservative and them still be on the side of advancing liberty because in America we are conserving a, um, a radical classical liberal infused revolution. And, um, so the conservatives that Hayek was rejecting were more of the European style continental conservatives. Um, this is also a point that Huntington, uh, Samuel Huntington makes in a wonderful essay called conservatism as an ideology where, you know, where you, where he points out that conservatism and radicalism, right? Cause radicalism just means tearing stuff down to the roots. So I guess you can make a claim that, um, uh, that's a universal thing, except the problem is, is that the stuff that a radical wants to tear down in Europe is going to be very different than the stuff that a radical wants to tear down in America. Um, stuff that someone wants to tear down in Africa is going to be different than something that someone wants to tear down in, in Asia. And, um, uh, and conservatism, likewise, the stuff it's going to want to conserve in, you know, this place versus that place is going to be very different. And, um, so in America, the things that conservatives want to conserve are very different than the things that conservatives in North Korea want to conserve. Um, and, uh, the thing that radicals want to tear down here in America, you know, life, liberty, the pursuit of justice, the constitution, all that kind of stuff, uh, for us, you know, stuffed crust pizza, um, is very different than the stuff that a radical in North Korea would want to tear down. And so you get this, it's very confusing thing is that sort of stuffy conservative types in America are more ideologically aligned in a lot of important ways with radicals in bad places, right? Like we like the freedom fighters and the radicals in authoritarian and totalitarian regimes because we think that they are trying to create something decent and democratic like we have here. And, um, and meanwhile, on the left, you have left-wingers who really like conservatives in the small C sense in places like Castro's Cuba or even North Korea or back in the day in Stalin's Russia, because those people are trying to, uh, quote-unquote, conserve extreme left-wing things. And so it can get very kind of confusing. And um, so this problem that we have today with the difference between being a conservative and a right-winger gets really, really thorny in part because a lot of people on the left and the mainstream media want to say that there is no difference, right? That this was always what conservatism was about. Um, and they want all conservatives and certainly all Republicans to own the dumbest, most extreme versions of what the right-wing populists are doing. And, um, and this is one of the things that vexes me about the moment that we're in. Um, and so, like, you know, when, when 
when what's it, JD Vance says he wants to seize the um, assets of institutions that he doesn't like and give it to the working man. Like if I just describe that in those generic terms, that hits my ear like a very left wing argument, you know, expropriating the wealth of the, um, of the ruling classes and giving it to the workers is not exactly William F. Buckley's conservatism. I think we can all agree on that. But because of the constituencies that J.D. Vance wants to give it to and the institutions that he wants to steal from and use state power to do it, um, it colors him right wing in the American political context, alas, but it does not color him conservative at all. And this is a real problem for our dialogue these days because I think everybody can agree, agree that the national political conversation is not a petri dish designed to nurture and grow nuance and subtle. And the thing that I think is weird about making about Whitaker Chambers calling himself a man of the right, and one of the reasons why I like that he did it, is that he wasn't talking about this kind of thing per se. He was making an argument about how he still held on to a bunch of his Marxist assumptions about how history works. You know, and the core of the Marxist sort of material history stuff uh, or dialectical materialism or historical materialism is that um, the modes and means of production are the things that drive history. And, um, and he thought that that kind of stuff, the age of mass man and that kind of thing were on the side of, of the left and, and that the institutions and norms and all that kind of stuff that conservatives and people like his friend Bill Buckley talked about, um, we're going to be insufficient to the task of fighting against that stuff. And this distinction used like intellectually used to be really useful for me about man, you know, someone of the right, um, versus conservative. I used to talk about this a lot about, uh, Christopher Hitchens, you know, my old neighbor, um, I would call him, um, a, you know, occasional drinking buddy, but like he was a different league than me and that's saying something. Um, he, uh, because he cared about history, because he cared about things, he rejected things like identity politics, um, because he was fanatically committed to things like democracy and free speech. Um, you can never call Christopher Hitchens a, a conservative. But towards the end of his life, he kind of became a man of the right. Um, at the very least, sort of a right-wing socialist. And I don't mean that in the sort of Nazi sense. I mean that in the sort of, he, you know, he could talk about things beyond the, inter the then burgeoning intersectionality of the left. Um, and he could find common cause with conservatives um, on, um, on a whole range of stuff about constitutional rights and civil liberties and that kind of thing. But he could never be a conservative in part because at the end of the day, the thing Hitchens hated the most, much like, you know, Rand and Marx was religion. I mean, he just hated religion. And if you could see it in him all the time, whenever he felt like he was um, finding common cause with 
the forces of religion, he kind of recoiled and, and overcompensated the other direction. Anyway, we could talk about that a lot more. Um, but I did want to get to this thing about how, um, I said at one point to George, um, you know, was Richard Hofstetter right all along? And George chuckled and said, first of all, Hofstetter was not right about a lot of things. And that, but then he moved on. And I, I, I worry that some people didn't quite get the reference. And I think it's a, an interesting, important thing. So Richard Hofstetter, first thing I think even his biggest detractors have to concede about him was a really wonderful writer. He was a very clear, good writer. Um, and this sort of gets to one of the reasons why some people really can't stand him is that he was sort of like, this is a little unfair to Hofstetter, but he was kind of like the Jane Mayer of historians. Jane Mayer is very good at insinuating evil motives of implying dastardly deeds and corruption. She's got a very gifted pen at um, in sort of indicting and impugning people's character, I would argue, profoundly unfairly. Um, you know, she was one of the ones who went after Kavanaugh um, with totally bogus stuff, but in part because of the way they fact check at the New Yorker and in part because of her skill at the way she does sort of uh, assassination journalism. Uh, she makes her stuff kind of bulletproof with weird caveats and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, I don't need to talk about Jane Mayer. Um, Hofstetter wasn't as insidious as that, um, but he was pretty insidious. And um, I think I talked about his stuff on social Darwinism on a special episode of the, of the Solo Remnant a while back, and we can put it in the show notes. You know, he, he completely got social Darwinism wrong i would argue or largely got social darwinism wrong there was no school of social darwinism it is one of these terms that the enemies of a group apply to it and then claim that the other side believes in it sort of like um um it's a small example but uh when alito was first appointed to the supreme court um a bunch of people starting with nina totenberg of npr said that he was widely called scalito um, by conservatives, um, and that he was a champion of the constitution and exile school. And it turns out that none of that was true. These were pejorative terms applied by the left and by a very few people on the left when that stuff first started, but then it's kind of stuck. Similarly, like the social Darwinism thing on a much broader scale was not, no one went around saying, I am a social Darwinist. Never mind. I am a social Darwinist and therefore I am um, a supporter of survival of the fittest capitalism, yada, 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 yada. It was, it was made up. Um, um, doesn't mean robber barons didn't leave bad, some bad things, but also the phrase robber baron is kind of a BS term too. We can talk about that if you want, but, uh, he did his thesis on his PhD thesis. I think it was his PhD thesis on social Darwinism in America and it had a profound influence on, uh, historiography, on the culture, on Hollywood. And I think a lot of it was just cheap and not right. And um, I talk about this a lot in my underrated book, uh, Tyranny and Clichés, and a little bit, I think, in liberal fascism. Um, so where was I? Oh, okay. So George Will's theory, uh, part of his theory about why 
the populist right is all pissed off and behaving the way it is is because of uh, status anxiety. And um, this is an argument, very old argument. It's got, I think, obviously merit to it. Um, but it's sort of like, you know, clear critical race theory or, um, um, it's not trickle down economics that couldn't, a uh, supply side economics. It's a little like supply side economics or, or critical race theory that there's nothing wrong with it that, um, couldn't be fixed by dividing by 10. You know, there's a point there, but it's not nearly as a powerful or a dispositive point as people claim. But status anxiety is this basic idea that was largely attributed to and popularized by Hofstetter that said the sort of progressive populist tumult of the progressive era um, was the result of basically the wasp white class, bourgeois class, feeling like their place in society was being threatened. And it caused all sorts of backlash. It drove reform. It drove all these kinds of things. I'm, I'm giving a little short shrift to Hofstet, the nuance of Hofstetter's off argument, but that's sort of the gist of it. And George sort of buys into some of this about where we are today. And I think he's right that this is one of the things that is driving our politics this day, these days. And David Brooks writes about a lot of this kind of stuff. Lots of people do because there's something to it, which is that in, a, in an economy with a lot of churn and a lot of changing rules and uh, that is obsessed with things like, you know, equity over equality and um, affirmative action, never mind all of the sort of, you know, boutique sexual arguments that we're making these days about transgender this and intersectional that, people feel like they're losing not just their country, but their sort of status, their place in it. And that causes upheaval. That causes turmoil. And, um, and so again, I think there's some truth to it, but uh, the problem with the whole status anxiety thing um, or status class anxiety, as some people say, that goes back to Hofstetter is that um, the social science that Hofstetter based that on was really shoddy. And what Hofstetter did was, in many respects, he took what um, Mark Levin calls the Franklin School, which is actually the Frankfurt School, um, uh, um, you know, which are these cultural Marxists um, who uh, brought big piles of Freud into Marxism in the in the 40s and 50s, um, in part because they were trying to come up with a way to explain the rise of fascism in Germany. Um, and they went to psychology as the, as the explanation tried to fuse it to sort of Marxism and maybe a little Darwinism in there too. Um, uh, what Hofstetter was really, really, really good at was converting that stuff into plain English and making it sound like um, it was, uh, you know, sort of almost explanatory journalism. Here's what's going on. These people are freaking out because of their, you know, psychological pain, and it's translating itself into this kind of politics. There's, there's Freud in there, there's also Jung, whatever. And, and, and that's what Hofstetter did, is translate that stuff into concepts like status anxiety or status class anxiety and that kind of thing. 
Um, and he really ran with it. Part of the problem with doing that is that, um, and this is a point that Christopher Lash makes really well, um, is that when you resort to psychologizing your political differences, you no longer feel the burden of actually making a political argument. You are dismissing um, your opponents as being deranged. This is why, like Lionel Trilling said, the conservatives conservatism was defined by irritable mental gestures. Um, and, uh, and we see a lot of this stuff today. I'll get to that in a second, I guess. Um, and so the, the chief guy that, um, Hofstetter was translating into English, uh, I should say into plain English, cause I'm pretty sure he was writing in English too, was this guy, Theodore Adorno, who was a hugely, hugely influential, uh, social psychologist, um, uh, in the middle of the 20th century, he wrote a book called the authoritarian personality. He claimed to have figured out, you know, how to, you know, basically bust out the calipers and measure people's skulls to figure out if they were fascists, he created this thing called the, um, the F scale F stood for fascist. I'm pretty sure. And, um, and it was a, a lot of psychobabble, terrible methodology. The authoritarian personality is in, has been in wide disrepute for a very, very long time. But at, and at the time it seemed like, you know, cutting edge dispositive science. And I have enormous problems with Adorno and in that whole field. Um, I write about him a bunch in my first book. I, um, 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 you know, part of my problem is that it works from the assumption that that whole approach works from the assumption that liberals um, and never mind Marxists <laughs> are the baseline normals, right? They're the ones that you um, uh, are, they're the yardstick of what sanity looks like. And then the more you disagree with them, the further out you get into insanity. And any social science that claims that somehow support for Stalin isn't authoritarian in any way, but support for Mussolini is just needs to go back to the drawing board and the authoritarian personality in Adorno is full of this kind of stuff. Um, and it, but it was hugely influential in psychological circles. It was hugely influential in political science. This guy, Herbert McCloskey did all sorts of asinine things with it. And you can see how it plays into sort of how you could, you know, sort of remember that Star Trek where you had the giant sort of mud tribble thing that, uh, called a Horda that just, uh, burned its way through solid rock and it gets wounded and McCoy has to come in with some liquid silicone and, um, work it into the wound to, to heal it. Um, you could see how the Frankfurt school Marxists could take Freud and Jung and these guys and massage it into the horda of dialectical materialism and doctrinaire Marxism to make this kind of like hybrid thing, right? So the original Marxist explanation for the dialectical process of social revolution and, and where, and, 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 uh, the class struggle is as the working class achieves class consciousness, um, particularly the proletariat achieves class consciousness. It starts to exert its rights and privileges. 
and the ruling class and the bourgeois, some of the bourgeois will, will calve off and join the proletariat. But for the most part, the ruling classes and the bourgeois and the industrialists, whoever, however you want to label them, will uh, fight to protect their class and their position as the rulers of society. The conflict will be great, but the proletariat will prevail. And huzzah, we enter into a new classist, classless society. Um, well, the, the psychological, the psychologization of, uh, this stuff from Adorno and the other, um, Frankfurt guys was to say, was to basically say the response to, uh, the rising proletariat and the class struggle caused a psychological panic in the actual human beings who were members of the ruling classes. and. Um, um, and that panic, that paranoid style, that status class anxiety, um, materialized itself, manifested itself as fascism. So fascism was the psychological response of the, of the evil ruling classes to the rise of the proletariat and the forces of truth and justice and, and all the rest. And it was, uh, horse hockey. It was just all nonsense. And we're not going to get into all the stuff about fascism right now, but it just, I, I just, okay, I should take it back. It's not all horse hockey. There is some kernel of truth to some of the psychological stuff. It just got wildly exaggerated and turned into a Rosetta stone or almost like a mathematical formula, like in that ridiculous foundation series I'm watching. An algorithm that explained everything. And it's fortuitous that I'm talking about this right now. I hadn't planned on this, but uh, Sally Sattel, my colleague at AEI, wonderful lady, um, uh, brilliant lady who we're going to get back on the remnant soon, um, has a wonderful piece about some of this in The Atlantic, which I just saw last night. Um, I haven't read it cover, you know, from beginning to end yet, but I printed it out, um, where she talks about how... Uh, the psychological, the social psychologist movement, um, or social psychologists, it's dawned on them that they found authoritarian, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, and if I'm missing some of her nuance, I apologize to Sally in advance, but this is something I've written and read a lot about for the last 20 years. It's, it used to be an obsession of mine. And I think she's exactly right, is that, and I should back up for just a second, I know I'm, I'm tapping the brakes a lot here, I apologize. But um, I've said, I think, a bunch of times on this podcast that one of the things I've changed my mind about most over the last 20 years is the role of psychology and, and, and sort of wired or innate human nature. It's a big part of Suicide the West. Um, and it's not because I've all of a sudden think that there's merit to Adorno and, and, and McCloskey and, and those people or some of that Republican brain nonsense that we had at the beginning of the 2000s. It's that people like Jonathan Haidt um, have convinced me that this stuff has merit because they do it right. You know, Paul Bloom's books have had a big impact on me. We're going to have him on the podcast soon. Um, he's been on the books for a while. Um, um, uh, there is merit to this stuff. But one of the things you find in Haidt and Bloom that you never found in people like Adorno is this acknowledgement that human nature exists across the ideological spectrum. And that's sort of the point that, that Sally seems to be making 
in this piece is that, sure, psychologists have found authoritarian tendencies among right-wingers for a long time now. And you know why? Because they were only looking at right-wingers. You know, it's sort of like, it turns out that right-wing people, people who believe in constitutional originalism and low taxes have thumbs. Who would have guessed? Well, you know, turns out the people who don't believe in any of those things have thumbs too. And um, there's this, uh, there, she's actually an economist. Um, I'm going to see if I can find her name. Um, she's mentioned in Ann Applebaum's book and I, I looked up her stuff and started reading it. And I, again, you know, I have a long history of, um, of, skepticism about the psychologization of this stuff, but there's this Karen Stenner. There's this woman, Karen Stenner, who talks about uh, sort of the authoritarian impulse. And she doesn't mean it the way Adorno meant it, right? She doesn't mean it the way a lot of the sort of Marxist Freudians meant it, that, you know, somehow if you screwed up your, if you screw up the potty training of your boy, he's going to invade Poland, right? That was the, the, idiocy you know what i think it's horkheimer is one of the frankfurt school marxists talks about how it's like the father the patriarchal structure of the family is what brings you dictatorship um which is fairly sweeping anyway um how did i get on this oh yeah so stenner her her stuff says yeah there's an authoritarian instinct or an authoritarian impulse i, I can't remember how she exactly phrases it but she doesn't mean like right-wing authoritarianism qua right-wing authoritarianism. She means a desire for the unity of purpose of society, uh, a distrust of heretics, um, a tendency towards groupthink, an emphasis over secure of security over freedom. And this is something that is wired into humanity across the ideological spectrum. But of course, since you a tendency that is wired across the ideological spectrum, might manifest itself in different ways across the ideological spectrum, but it doesn't mean it's not there. And Sally points to the study, which I've downloaded, I haven't read yet, obviously, I haven't even really finished Sally's piece, um, about how they finally start to look for this stuff on the left. And lo and behold, it's on the left, which is something I've been pounding my spoon on my high chair about for a very long time. Of course, it's on the left. You cannot tell me that, you know, a political movement that to one extent or another, backed Castro, Che Guevara, Joseph Stalin, made apologies for the Iranian Revolution um, and the and the Ayatollahs, um, uh, has no susceptibility to authoritarianism. You can't tell me that these people with all this cancel culture nonsense don't have a tendency towards authoritarianism. And if you don't like the word authoritarianism, fine, put another name on the rose. It's still a rose. You know, this, this, this mob, like, you know, I've been, the cult of unity is this thing I've been writing about forever. And the cult of unity is a human thing. And I would actually argue it is, if anything, up until at least recently, more prevalent or at least more pernicious on the left than it has been on the right. Today is a different time and the right's got its problems, as I've said many times. But, you know, the people who are saying on college campuses all of my life, you know, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. That's fascistic. That's authoritarian. That's mob thinking. Um, that exists 
on the left, there's this guy, this this poor bastard at the University of Michigan. Um, uh, Christina Hostomers was tweeting about this last night, who showed um, a clip of Lawrence Olivier playing Othello. And so, yeah, he was wearing blackface to play Othello. And they're railroading this guy as a racist now. Um, it's just nuts. And you can't, oh, that's, that can't tell me that that's not an undemocratic authoritarian sentiment at work there. Um, and so it exists on all sides and, um, uh, and it can be triggered by different things at different moments. It can manifest itself in different ways at different times. Um, but you know, this is the, 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 this has been the fundamental problem with all of this psychological, you know, stuff in politics for so long is that it is trying to find ways to dismiss political opponents by saying their brains don't work, right? Or that they're crazy or that they're disturbed or they're being irrational because that's a way to win an argument without actually having to win the argument. It's a stolen base, as I often say. Um, so there, I should say there, there were things that Hofstetter was kind of right about. You know, he was right about um, some stuff about the progressives, which I think was really interesting. The Age of Reform is a very slender little book. It's a great read if you're into that kind of stuff. I, I check, check it out. You know, I, I, I double check things that might ring weird to you. Um, not saying that he makes up stuff. I'm just saying that, um, or makes up facts, I should say. I'm just saying that his takes sometimes leave out countervailing arguments that need to um, uh, be judged against the facts of the time. Um, and he was right about third parties. You know, maybe his most famous phrase was um, other than the paranoid style of American politics, which is another example of what I'm talking about. Paranoid style exists in American politics because it exists in human beings. There's a paranoid style of the left. There's a paranoid style of the right. We talked about that a lot with the um, with the Joe Uzinski, uh, uh, conspiracy theory podcast, uh, that we did a while back we'll put those in the show notes. Um, but other than the paranoid style, probably his most famous quip was that third parties are like bees. They have their effect by stinging and then they die. And what he meant by that, which is sort of obvious also ties back to what George was talking about, about the election of 1912. When you have a third party, the third party tends to have its effect by destroying the party it is ideologically closer to by dividing that vote that is opposed to the other party. And so in 1912, you had Woodrow Wilson running as a Democrat, you had uh, Taft running as a Republican, and you had a, a newly progressivized, I'm sorry, Chris Starwalt, but he, was, he wasn't as progressive um, as president as he became after he read the promise of American life and got ensorcelled by it. And then you had Teddy Roosevelt who was uh, on the Bull Moose Party and Bull Moose Party destroyed Taft, paved the way for, for Wilson and um, hopefully we'll get the horrible work sound in here um, somewhere. Um, um, Ross Perot, I would argue, I know people disagree with me, I would argue did the same thing to, to George H.W. Bush um, a lot of liberals think that that's what, um, Ralph Nader did to Al Gore. Um, you can go down the list. I guess I'll just close last night on special report. Um, you know, we have to do these, uh, 
headlines of tomorrow or tomorrow's headlines thing. I not a huge fan of it. It's always a huge drag trying to come up with something. And, um, and they usually want me to come up with something funny. Um, and which makes it even more of a burden. Um, but anyway, I did this thing last night where tomorrow's headline was, um, something along the lines of, uh, Steve Bannon invokes little used, um, friendly podcaster privilege to defy January 6th commission of subpoenas, something like that. And, um, some people didn't know what I was referring to or what I was talking about. The, the thing is, is that the January 6th commission is as subpoenaed Mark Meadows, uh, Cash Patel, somebody else from the administration. I can't remember who and, um, and Steve Bannon. Now, three of those guys, including the person whose name I can't remember, were actually working for the president at the time when Donald Trump was still president. Steve Bannon was, you know, doing his beer hall putch podcast BS from his basement or wherever the hell he lives or does it. Um, and on the side, organi- helping organize uh, the January 6th riot stuff. And, um, the idea that somehow, first of all, just to be clear, Donald Trump has no power at this point to invoke executive privilege, except he can say I'm invoking executive privilege, but he doesn't have any privilege anymore. The privilege adheres to the president at the, in the moment, right? So Biden as the, and the presidency at the moment has the ability to invoke executive privilege. Historically, yeah, presidents tend to defend their predecessors from prying eyes because they want to be defended likewise when they leave office. And so they often will defend executive privilege for, you know, executive privilege claims for people who want to have certain records unsealed before their official unsealing date or whatever. This is different. The Biden administration has said that it's going to waive or not enforce claims of executive privilege pertaining to the January 6th stuff. I completely and 100% agree with the Biden administration on this. There is no reason to defend Donald Trump's communications on his, beha- in, in his behavior to try and steal an American election on the grounds of executive privilege. Um, I, I think that the, and I might write about this today, um, but I, I, I remain appalled by what Trump did on January 6th. You don't have to call it an insurrection. Um, I remain appalled by what Donald Trump did going into the election. He was looking to steal the election. And um, I'm astounded that there are people who, you know, like Roger Kimball, who are committed to beclowning themselves um, on this stuff. Uh, claiming that, you know, they're the victimized party here, claiming as Heather Higgins has done and he's in real clear politics. I saw the other day, it was from a while ago that, you know, the real outrage here is something along the lines that people are using January 6th as an excuse to demonize Trump voters and Republicans generally, which I agree they are doing. They are for sure doing. The left is doing that. The mainstream media is doing that. And you know why it's so easy for them to do it? 
Because people like Roger Kimball are saying, those people spoke for me, that if you attack them, you're attacking me. You know, because people like Dinesh D'Souza, who makes me want to rethink all of my condemnations about, you know, Theodore, Theodore Adorno and all this stuff, is going out there saying, you know, I think history, you know, I wonder if history is going to say that the January 6th protests was America's uh, Tiananmen Square moment where, you know, righteous citizens seeking redress from their government were brutally, you know, shut down by the state that brooked no dissent, which is so asinine and evil for Dinesh to be playing these games. It appalls me. And, And the guy used to be, you know, I used to be pretty friendly with Dinesh and I did stuff for Dinesh. Never friggin' again. That is disgusting. Um, so, uh, if you're going to go out there and say attacks on the people who are chanting Mike Pence are attacks on me, you can't then complain that people are saying that, uh, the January 6th guys were speaking for you because you're claiming in retrospect that they were speaking for you. You're claiming that they're part of your popular front, that they were on the right side of things. And that's appalling. It's not just morally appalling. It's not just psychologically and morally gross. It is the dumbest friggin' politics I can imagine. You know, this is like my argument I had with you, Hewitt, at the beginning of all of this nonsense about the alt-right. We, incorporating the alt-right into, which, and in and, and, and fairness to Hugh, he agreed with me at the end of this argument, but you know, incorporating the alt-right into our popular front is suicidally stupid. I cannot, you know, I cannot stress this enough. It is, and I don't mean it's just, again, it's not just that it's morally repugnant and intellectually corrupt. It is politically idiotic to say that uh, Groypers and Charlottesville Tiki Torch buffoons are part of the broad conservative movement because First of all, people of decency are going to cleave off and leave the conservative movement if that claim is institutionalized. But second of all, um, you are going to reject more people who would otherwise agree with mainstream conservatives if they're told, oh, by the way, if you join us, it's sort of a love me, love my neo-Nazi deal. Um, It's just dumb politics. And this is something that, you know, going back to Buckley, you know, understanding that sometimes you have to throw the crazies overboard to convince people you're not crazy. And these institutional jackwads, or the, I should say, these, these jackwads who have institu- are trying to institutionalize crazy on the right are, are doing something that I, 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 I cannot get my head around how stupid it is on sort of every single level. Um, and Bannon is a huge part of that. I'm sorry, I got into a tirade there. I apologize. I'm trying to get out of this. Um, so like Bannon is invoking, um, you know, so Trump is invoking executive privilege. Bannon is going to uh, apparently uh, refuse to comply with congressional subpoenas in accordance to Trump's invocation of executive privilege. Well, um, that's not how any of this works. Bannon wasn't part of the executive branch on January 6th. 
Second of all, what Bannon was doing, like literally organizing this attempted putsch, um, uh, or maybe it wasn't an attempted putsch, maybe it was just simply some sort of Reichstag-style theatrics, whatever, whatever he was trying to do, there is no way that this is like, you know, covered by the, the core of what executive privilege is supposed to cover. And, um, but we're going to get a lot of unbelievably stupid lawyering coming out of this January 6th stuff. And a lot of you who pay attention to how these debates go are going to be asked to act as if there are two sides to this argument that, you know, oh, we sh you know, this is like going to be like the, the efforts to steal the election thing again, where the, um, people, you know, go into this psychological and political safe Harbor of, well, let's let the process play out. Um, and you know, oh, an executive privilege is very important. We have to protect executive privilege, you know, which is what we saw like with the first and second impeachment stuff. It's all nonsense. There aren't, this is not a, you know, well, both sides have a good argument kind of thing here. This is Donald Trump who tried to steal an election, who fomented a mob, um, who, uh, tried to bully Mike Pence into caving to the mob. I mean, literally said, you know, wouldn't it be cool if you could do this and, and that you had, and that you exercise the power that these people want you to have, um, read the dialogue in peril. Um, the book, um, I don't want you to be in peril. Uh, uh, he tried to do these things. He tried to cover it up. Congress, if Congress doesn't have the right, I mean, this should have all happened during impeachment. Don't get me started on impeachment, but this should all should have happened a long time ago. Um, there is no legal argument now for executive privilege because the current president is not apply, invoking it. So it doesn't apply to Meadows, but it really doesn't apply to, you know, Steve Bannon with his hooves and his bat wings in his cave talking about how he and his goon thug army is going to take over America. Um, and, but they're going to claim it in court. It's going to be spectacularly stupid and I'm going to enjoy watching it. Um, but I'm not going to enjoy watching a lot of conservatives either sincerely or cynically defend it as if there's a real argument there because there's not. So anyway, uh, Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm sorry I didn't get into the punditry about Biden's polling. I think I might write something about that today as well. Um, thanks for tuning in. Thank you again, everybody, for the support we've gotten in these first two years. Great things are ahead. And if you aren't a subscriber, if you aren't a member of the Dispatch community, and you feel motivated to be one, um, now would be a great time to do it. Um, and um, I, I really am. I am. I am truly, truly grateful to everybody. And um, I'll see you next time.